The Athletic. MM stands for Mick McCarthy, not Merlin Magician. Evans will hit it all! That is special! It's magic at Molyneux! Dreaming is for free. Hello and welcome to the Molyneux View podcast with me, Jackie Oatley, and one of the finest Wolves correspondents ever to appear on this podcast, Tim Spears. Hello, Tim. (laughs) You're so annoying. Hello, Jackie. Oh, hello, Flower. There's no shame in losing to Manchester City away, is there? But how much did Wolves contribute to their own downfall? Does the stay in the game message from Nuno make Wolves too negative from the outset, especially at struggling Newcastle? Should Connor Cody give Willian Jose tips about how to get into goal-scoring positions, perhaps? And we'll hear how Wolves' loanee Dion Sanderson from Wensfield is smashing it at Sunderland. Our guest is the former Wolves Head of Communications, Paul Berry, on the wonderful contribution made by the Wolves plumber-turned-club historian and all-round legend, Graham Hughes, who sadly passed away. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. I'm pointing at Tim. He's one of those. That's one of you. You are You are one of these top writers, Tim. So they told me to say. Um, so go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash wolvespod to take advantage of the special 40% discount. Tim, Wolves have gone from doing the double over Manchester City last season to being comfortably doubled twice. But uh, what did you make of it at the Etihad? It's a funny game, wasn't it? Funny game. Uh, they, were, they were so out of it at half time. It wasn't a very even contest despite it being 1-0. It was just a frustrating evening. I know it's Man City. Yes, they're incredible. They're probably the best team in Europe at the moment. Uh, I fully expected a defeat. I really didn't see a surprise result happening, to be honest. But I guess it's just Wolves slipping below the standards that we're used to, really. Like I said, I know it's Man City. But last season, they pushed the champions all the way in two games. It was Liverpool last year. You know, they very marginally lost at Anfield and marginally lost at Molyneux. 1-0 and 2-1. The year before, City were champions and Wolves drew with them at Molyneux. And then they lost 3-0 at the Etihad, but only because Willy Bolly got sent off after 10 minutes. Even the year before, when Wolves were in the championship, they went to the Etihad and took them all the way to penalties in an EFL Cup tie. I know City rested a few that night, but they still had Aguero and Jesus and Sterling in the team. So that's the standards they set. They don't really get heavily beaten. Albeit, you know, it was two, it was 2-1 until the 90th minute here. So it was a good comeback in the second half. But ultimately, yeah, were it not for Rio Patricio, then um, it could have been an even an even bigger victory for City. That first half, what was your take on Wolves' approach? Because mm. afterwards, Conor Cody mm. talked about how the approach had been to stay in the game. But do you think that mindset in the players really breeds negativity rather than, yes, stay in the game, don't let City have it all their own way. But then when you get the ball, pass, move, make an angle make space for your teammate to pass to you and be positive and get up the pitch. Do you think they just take that and just shrink into themselves? The approach, in theory, is the right one because that's how they won at Man City last year. Uh, a fantastic game it was. They, they were they were defending for their lives at City last year. They had uh, 24% possession. Last night they had 27%. The plan last year was to sit deep, soak up the pressure and hit, and hit them on the break. The issue was that the out ball was just terrible and the tempo of their passing was really slow. So they, so they were just kept inviting pressure on themselves. You know, the, the long balls to Traore and Neto yielded absolutely nothing at all, as expected. But also the, the short passing out from the back was really sloppy. They kept putting it out of play. They kept giving it back to City, which is just the one thing you don't want to do. So the approach of, of sitting deep, five at the back, and looking to hit him on the break. I don't think there's any other way that you can play at Man City. But the execution was what was was what was lacking last night. And um, Nuno kind of sort of suggested as much afterwards, you know, um, 
that the game plan is the game plan and um, kind of admitted that they made some mistakes. I think he was being too nice to his players, really. I don't think he'd have been really um, happy at all with, with what he'd seen at the first in the first half. It was just a real lack of intensity. The out ball was terrible. Poor passes, poor movement and poor hold at play. And, um, and City were coasting, really. They didn't really get out of second gear uh, all night. Well, exactly. I mean, you know what Manchester City can do, but we also know what Wolves can do and the amount of pace they have on the counter-attack, but there never seemed to be that pace in the transition and the midfield link from defence to attack just wasn't there, was it? It was as if they'd spent the two full days between the Newcastle and the Man City games just watching clips of Man City being devastating and it scared the living daylights out of them and they were terrified to move out of their defensive positions. But then... They did change it around. But in terms of the, the lineup when you saw it and then the way you saw it transpire with Semedo's position, what did you make of that? Um, I, th- I was surprised not to see someone who can hold the ball up. And I was surprised not to see William Jose come on at half time, actually. Like, I know um, he hasn't scored yet, but that's that's there's so much more to his game than that in terms of in terms of strength. He does hold the ball up pretty well, or at least, you know, he has in certain games like Crystal Palace away. And a couple of others that don't, uh, Southampton as well. You know, he, he can hold the ball up pretty well, but that ball just wasn't sticking up front. So I was slightly surprised to, to see that. I thought Silver did well when he came on, actually. But this first half thing, I mean, Wolves have had a first half problem for years in terms of, or, or two years, in terms of not scoring early on. But it's, it's they've been taking the mick recently. I mean, if you think about some of the first halves that we've sat through, Chelsea away was soul-destroying. I don't know it was the game plan to get a point and they did it. But still, Southampton away, one of the worst first halves I've seen from Wolves ever. It was atrocious at St Mary's. You know, they, they were just weren't even competing in the game. The first half an hour at Newcastle, which was sort of criminal really because they made Newcastle look so, so good. And then last night, like I said, I know there was only 1-0, but the intensity just wasn't there. And they weren't playing with them with any kind of tempo at all. And they were paying City too much respect, really, I think. So last year was so different. But City were more vulnerable last year and Jimenez and Catroni caused them no end of problems. They are a different animal this year and Wolves Wolves did really struggle against them. They did. It was good to be 1-0 at half-time. Second half... You know, they really ramped the intensity up. Players were further up the field. Like I said, Silver came on and did well. But that also opened the game up. You know, as Wolves opened up, the game opened up. And they had to really rely on Rui Patricio, who was excellent again for the third game in a row, to make two or three really good saves. And then somehow grabbed this equaliser with their first shot um, and pretty much their first touch in the box, I think. And they were briefly in this ascendancy for five to, for five or ten minutes. It just shows you, you know, you, you try and get at a team. You, you, you can cause them a few problems. Traore had a couple of chances. Neto had one too. And, um, yeah, for a brief spell, it looked like Wolves, Wolves, were, Wolves could actually win this game from nowhere. But then back came City, and ultimately it was, it was sort of about holding on and maybe nicking one on the break in the closing stages. I mean, as, as good as City were... And as much as Patricio was keeping Wolves in the game for long spells, that killer second goal on 80 minutes came from a Wolves mistake. You know, Traore trying to do too much, gives the ball away. Semedo doesn't hold the offside line, not for the first time this season. You know, it was a tad deep. I think it was Mares he was he was keeping onside. And it's 2-1. And then the third goal, Otisawi getting in the muddle, gives the ball away and it's 3-1. So it's so difficult to know how to to approach the game you could say that Wolves should have started the first half like they started the second in terms of intensity and getting at City but that would have just left them so exposed We saw, like I said we, they had to rely on Patricio early in that second half once they opened up so if they did that in the first half it could be 3-0 at half time and game over so I understand obviously trying to keep it tight early on and what you'd say at least the game was alive all the way to the 90th minute in terms of being 2-1 down still in the game a goal from a point not many teams have done that in this unbelievable run that City are on so there are some positives to take away Patricio being great an improved second half Cody's goal obviously um, but it's just disappointing that if they'd reached the standards obviously if you're going to if you're going to get anything at City you've got to be at your very best and they've got to add an off day I thought City did have a bit of an off day in terms of of their um, how, how seriously they were taking it it just looked too easy for them they were strolling but Wolves weren't at their best if they had been at their best they really could have got something last night Andy Cobbold 
the way we play being uber defensive and soaking it up often doesn't work. When we go for it, however, we generally look great. Why doesn't Nuno go for it from the start? Is it a limitation due to our squad or due to his management style? Now, as you said, you're not going to go for it completely against Man City from the start because that's 90 minutes of being picked off by world-class players. But you can tell what Andy's saying there is that the negative mindset, never mind Man City away, it's Southampton, it's Newcastle. That first half hour away at Newcastle was embarrassing. And I've analysed that to death and I sent you a boatload of clips about how Wolves were just bypassed in midfield and nobody was busting a gut to do anything. And William Jose was just standing on the left wing at one point, putting no pressure on anybody at all. The Newcastle defenders were just passing the ball around at the back at will, carved Wolves open in the midfield because Moutinho was just chasing shadows, which is not what he's good at at all. And they just carved Wolves open. It was utterly, utterly embarrassing. That's the sort of negativity I think Andy's referring to. I think um, the approach of of starting the game sort of slowly and digging in and getting a foothold in the game, that's worked incredibly successfully for Wolves against the big teams. They've got this great record against the the so-called Big Six um, since they won promotion. The Man United FA Cup game would be the perfect example. I remember they did nothing for half an hour, Wolves. They were just sat deep. Man United were passing it around their third, but it was it was very deliberate. And then they started hitting them on the break, and of course they got this this famous victory. This that's fine against the against the big six works really really well. At Newcastle away, that's not the approach that you want because at, and uh, Southampton at home in the FA Cup as well. Do you remember when it just gave them a foothold in the game? Gave a a poor team on a poor run some confidence and a foothold by sitting back in the early stages. So. I just yeah, I'd like to see them on the front foot more in in those type of games. You know, not talking about the Man City game here because I thought their their approach was the right one, albeit it just wasn't executed that that well. Um, but against Newcastle, yeah, m- maybe it's a confidence issue. Um, maybe it's the way that they've been that they've been instructed how to play by Nuno. But I just think with the players at his disposal, they can be doing more against against weaker opposition. This is the way that they've always played. They've never really gone full throttle and taken the game to, to substandard opposition in matches. Even in the championship days, really, they never blew teams away week after week because he's, he's, a, he's a pragmatic manager. That's how he gets his results and by and large it has worked for Wolves. But with the talent he's got now, Maybe he just feels the defence isn't strong enough and I think there's a, there's a growing sense, it has been for a while now for me, that that, that they need a, a top-class centre-half. And if he wants to play front foot, which he's suggested that he does want to, he said at the start of the season he wants to dominate games, he wants more possession. That transition is going to take some time, but it has to start from the back for me. The defence has got to be solid enough for Wolves to play a four at the back and allow them to open up a bit more. I don't think he trusts his um, individual defenders to really open up this team very much. So hopefully that's something we'll see next season. You know, there's a big summer ahead in the transfer market. They they need a top-class centre-half and they need a a top-class central midfielder with mobility and aggression to to complement Ruben Neves. That's the way that I see it. I think a lot of fans see it the same way. So yeah, a a big summer ahead. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because they do have three midfielders turned centre-halves at the moment. So it's not a huge surprise that they're not massively trusting. Connor Cody, as good as he is, needs proper um, specialist centre-halves alongside him, really, rather than sort of makeshift situation. I know Willie Bolly's out, but Kilman's on the bench. And it reminds me, just talking there, of Nuno as a manager and his pragmatic approach of Liverpool away earlier in the season. And pre-match build-up, they had an interview with Diogo Jota, who said he went to Liverpool and loves the positivity of Jurgen Klopp compared to Nuno, who's a more defensive manager. Now, I don't think he meant it as a criticism as such, but, and of course, Liverpool have far better players, more resources. We know all that. But he was talking about the approach of the managers and how Klopp is just so much more positive and front foot compared to Nuno. And that's something that, particularly at the moment, Wolves fans are a little frustrated about, is that negativity. Again, we're not really talking about Man City away, which is just the toughest game of the season, bar none. But really, those other games, and the number of times we've watched Wolves, obviously on TV recently, in the first half, you're sitting there slightly embarrassed and defensive of your club, thinking everyone else is watching this, thinking Wolves aren't doing anything, aren't, aren't crossing the halfway line, or aren't, when they do get the ball, just giving it away and not remotely being positive at all. And that's what people are referring to, isn't it? 
And that comes from the manager, surely. Yeah, definitely. That's that's the way he's always been. I mean, that's that's why he wasn't very popular at Porto. I think uh, Porto finished runners up in the table, and they lost like one one game or two games all season, I think. But he wasn't popular because he was pragmatic and seen as dour, and playing for for narrow victories rather than being open and expansive football. And that's that's but that's worked for Wolves. You know, that's why they finished seventh two seasons in a row. So. If you want to disband that approach and go for something completely different, you're not going to do it with one with one transfer window, and um, and and no preseason and all the problems they've had this season. So, you know, you look at Leeds being the complete opposite of Wolves. Wolves beat them twice this season, and you know, for all the the fantastic play that Leeds have had, and everybody's second team, as commentators will tell you, although I don't think that's true in real life, but the, the, the pundits love them, as we know, and they're a great team to watch. Uh, they're only one point ahead of Wolves in the table, despite all the problems that Wolves have had this year. And like I said, Wolves have beat them twice. So the important thing for me is Nuno has spoken about wanting to change this team. And like I said, that's not going to happen in one summer with no pre-season. So I think he recognises these problems. He's tried to change, he has changed the formation this year, for someone who's so kind of uh, stubborn and has this formula and this template that he's used for three years so successfully, he ripped that up and tried four two three one, and all of a sudden, Wolves were having shots left, right, and centre, and they had like twenty five shots against Albion when they lost. So he has tried that. The problem was the defence, and week after week they were shipping goals all over the place. A horrendous defence. So he has tried that. And Wolves were heading for the bottom three with conceding these goals, three at Brighton, three against Albion. So what he's done, he's gone back to what he knows and what the players know to get some points on the board. They had a fabulous February and any relegation fears have completely gone. But the important thing for me, like I said, is that Nuno is willing to change it. He wants to change it. He wants more possession. He wants to dominate games. He probably wants to play 4-2-3-1. At the moment, I think we saw around Christmas, he can't do that. He can't. Wolves can't defend well enough. So I know it's frustrating at this time and everyone wants everything to change now and results here and there, but just going to have to have a bit of patience. Wait for the summer. Hopefully they address these issues. They get a full pre-season under their belt and then we'll see what they can do next season. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's absolutely a personnel issue because when you have these midfielders turn centre-half, it's much harder to play four at the back and they don't have the kind of defensive midfielders at the club do they to be able to be solid in front of the back four and there is part of me that still wants to see Cody in that role I just think he's brilliant and give him the chance to spray the ball around from midfield and also uh, to join the attack could really add something but that's maybe for Nuno to think about in the summer but there needs to be two recognised centre-halves in that position if you're playing a flat back four and midfield is a massive problem again having analysed the Newcastle game the way that Wolves were just pass through at will and seeing Moutinho just chasing around all the time looking at the stats zero sprints from him in centre of a midfield two was extraordinary and he was he was just sort of pootling around being passed through and his way of tackling it's a bit like a dog weeing up a tree isn't it he just dangles a leg rather than rather than actually tackling it's not his game his game is being on the front foot and picking out wonderful passes which he did supremely against the nine men of Arsenal but it's just a case of Wolves being dysfunctional at the moment with the wrong type of players for the type of roles that Nuno really needs them to do hence why perhaps we just need to park frustrations a little bit wait till the summer give Nuno a chance to really do what he needs to do in the transfer market albeit with restricted resources no doubt because of the pandemic and etc but are you expecting them to buy a dynamic central midfielder and a solid centre half this summer. Expecting? Did you just ask people to park their frustrations until the summer? <laughs> <laughs> Not frustrations, no, because everybody's obviously entitled, as we are, you know, as viewers, as watchers, as supporters, as everything, frustrated too. But in terms of slating Nuno full stop and saying, well, he's not the man, as in give him chance to sort out the issues from this season. And how, how realistic do you think that is? I think Twitter's going to be nice and calm and, and sedate for the rest, the rest of the season. <laughs> no, but don't you think it makes sense? Oh, no, I completely agree. To, it's just never going to happen. To kind of will them on for the rest of the season. And yes, of course, to critique and to criticise and what well, he should have done that and why didn't he do that? Of course, that's fair enough. And Nuno would expect that. But in terms of 
you want to see what he can do this summer when he has that time on the training ground. They haven't been in Europe this season. They will have a proper pre-season. They will come back, hopefully, with fans. And then you can really judge and go, OK, they've had chance to address the lack of backup centre-forward. They've got chance to address the midfield issues. They've got chance to address the centre-half issues and see what they do. Yeah, com- 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 I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, a massive summer awaits. You know, um, their recruitment record's been outstanding until the past sort of eighteen months or so, and they've got to put right the wrongs of last summer. And um, I, I, I hope they don't go and spend forty million on Vitinha and Aitnori. And I, I hope they're not overpaying for youngsters that might not come good for a few years. And you know, as much as as much as I do like Silva, and I think he will come good. That's a huge proportion of last summer's budget. Um, I mean, we had Matt Wild on a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, general manager of football operations. I think his, his title is, and he sort of alluded to to budget issues, which of course everybody's got. No one knows what their income levels are going to be. Taking a massive financial hit with a pandemic. He also explained how flaming hard it is to sign players these days from abroad. I wonder whether there might be more home base stroke Premier League players recruited, albeit for an extra premium. Mm. Yeah, but that's that's when you pay over the odds, you know. And this this buying these cheap players from Portugal is is what's worked so well for them. So massive summer ahead. But how much money have they got to spend? Um, Fosin asked for more investment eighteen months ago. That's not been forthcoming. You know, the summer spend. I know they spent eighty million, but they re- they recouped about eighty million as well. It was a net. There's a very low net spend. And I'd expect more of the same this year and interested to see who they're going to sell, really, because I feel like they'll have to they'll have to make a big sale if they want to invest more in the team. I can't see them spending £100 million this summer and not selling anybody. And that, that would be extremely risky. I just can't, can't see that happening. Like I said, uh, everything's been thrown up in the air by the pandemic and... Um, Fosun don't want to throw money around anyway. So they're going to have to be canny this summer and they're going to have to rely on Mendes to, to get them a couple of bargains. The loans to buy that have been so successful over the past few years, they're going to need a couple of those as well. So hopefully, and I'm sure, this is what they're looking at right now because there are two or three really key additions that they've got to make this summer. Otherwise, it'll be it'll be mid-table again next year, whereas really, you know, with the players they've got, they need to be looking up, looking up the table and looking at becoming regular challenges to the top six. Yeah, you suggested on the last pod it might be Adama Traore because of the contract situation and the value. But I know people were a little frustrated with him um, against Manchester City, giving the ball away, turning into traffic instead of using one of the simple defensive passes. I understand that. But he does add so much. And you just think with that bit of support, with somebody to link up with in the midfield when he's going on his runs, somebody can play the one-twos with, which he isn't really getting from the likes of Matinho at the moment. I don't want a Matinho bash, but I just feel Wolves need a lot more athleticism in that midfield. Um, I just think it'd be such a shame to sell him and then he reaches his potential in somebody else's shirt and then Wolves lose so much of that ability to get up the field when they need to and that blistering pace and the fear of God he puts into the opposition as well. But I also understand your point about they might need finances from somewhere. So might it be the loan market that they go into if they don't sell somebody such as him? I, th- I mean, it's worked It's worked so successfully for them in the past. I mean, they had, they had Jota on loan for a year. They had Johnny on loan for half a season. They had Jimenez on loan for a year. They had Bolly on loan for a year. Uh, Vinagra maybe as well even back in the day I'm sure there are others I'm forgetting at the moment but it's it's worked so successfully for them um, they've done it again this year Eight Nori, Vitinha and, and uh, William Jose so yeah I'd, given the financial situation I'd expect them to do that and Traore I, I, like I said I think last week the issue with Traore one he's not signing a new contract it's two years he's got left on that deal now two years is when really you're looking at um, at his, uh, still being at his maximum value. Once you get into that into that two year period until the contract expires, that's when the, his value starts to go down. So I think that's the situation they'll look at, and they know they can get an awful lot of money for him. I'm sure because he's such a unique and well known talent. So we'll we'll see, we'll see. But like I said, if they're going to spend a lot of money this summer, then they, they are going to have to sell as, as well. Looking at a few of the tweets. Aaron Wright, Tim, your thoughts on the Silva-Jose debate? Silva has looked better in his cameos, in my opinion, better movement in the box, more desire to score, better off giving him a run to speed up his development. I'd like to combine the two, if possible. Well, certainly in terms of Silva's mobility and movement, if you could add that into William Jose's game, 
then you've got exactly what you want. I think Josie Alf was more, more to the team personally in terms of holding the ball up, strength, uh, linking the play. You know, he's not done it every game, but he can do it much better than Silver, much better. And the, yeah, the Silver thing, I mean, a month ago, everyone was saying he's, he's not good enough. We have to sign a striker in January and this kid is not ready. And now Jose's not scored and people want Silver back again. So I don't really understand, that. Not, not necessarily the person who's asked the question, but that generally people have, have been saying Silver's not good enough uh, and now he is again, which I don't really get. And um, I'd, I, I think Jose's got a lot to offer. And yes, he could do with a couple of goals. And I think at this moment in time, he said they won't sign him for 20 million for a player who turns 30 this year. But in terms of leading that line, opening the doors for Neto and Traore, I think they I think they look a better team with him than Silva. And I think Silva's a good option from the bench, actually, because he comes on with all this enthusiasm late in the game and gets in great positions in the box. He just needs to add that finishing touch. Yeah. William Jose, an interesting one. I was defending him after the Newcastle game when people were tweeting, going about, oh, his lack of mobility. And I was like, oh, he'll come good, just needs a service. Then I watched it back and analysed him and thought... Blimey, he's good at coming deep with his back to goal. He'll lay it off and then he'll just jog slowly into the traffic of centre-halves and get lost a bit. So when one of the wide players was trying to find him, he was nowhere to be found. And then when, for example, Neto fizzed a fabulous ball across the six-yard box, which no defender wanted to get a touch to, he was a few yards back and wasn't gambling and wasn't making that run. And Nuno touched on this when you asked him in the press conference before the City game, And he said he does some good things well, he says, but he has to do more. And that movement, that anticipation has to be so much better because he's got the ability. I mean, we've seen what he can do in Spain, the type of goals that he scores. So his movement has to be better. But equally, he's not getting any slide rule type passes from the midfield. Remember against Arsenal when he was cleaned through and David Luiz caught his foot and was sent off and it was a penalty. Those kind of passes haven't been forthcoming. Wolves aren't playing from the midfield up towards the strikers in that way. It's always a case of getting the ball wide, but then he's not showing for the crosses and the wide men aren't able to find him. So it's just not been clicking. And you wonder whether he's lost a bit of confidence as a result. I think he's still living in a hotel. His family aren't with him. Nuno alluded to this and I think his wife's pregnant as well. So you just wonder whether the whole thing of him just not settling, not getting a goal yet, it's just not happening for him. And yet we know for a fact he has so much more to offer. He has that quality. Yeah, I mean, Nuno alluded to after the Newcastle game that he thought um, his movement was good and it's his teammates who need to find him better as well. And I think there is a wavelength issue there. And I think there's an issue with intensity of the Premier League. You know, he did very well in Spain. He got into double figures four seasons in a row. But La Liga is very different and um, in terms of pace and intensity. And he's not the most mobile of players. And yeah, he is, he is kind of jogging into the box. Like I said, if, if you could somehow combine the two, then, then you've got the player that you want at the moment. But what, what this all shows is how good Jimenez is <laughs> you know we, we knew at the time how good he was he is a combination of the two isn't he he is he's got the movement and the finish he does everything he does absolutely everything it shows you how, how important he is to this team and we can't wait to get him back which hopefully hopefully will be pretty soon yeah you talked about Fabio Silva and how his stock has risen since Jose's been in the side it's because when he comes on he, he runs around like a blue bottomed fly and closes down defenders and does make life difficult and gets in the the positions and it's showing up what perhaps we haven't seen so much with William Jose although he does do some good work off the ball but you just want to let this lad develop don't you you want to give him time because his attitude's wonderful Fabio Silva and he will come good he just looks so much better when the pressure's off him maybe coming off the bench and uh, you know he's had a couple of late chances hasn't he in games to win them for Wolves particularly that one at Newcastle. Leicester. Leicester, yes. Oh, right, yeah, that one as well. There have been a few, there have been a few. But um, hey-ho. Nuno did give us an update on Raul Jimenez. Just tell us what he said, please. Yeah, he's he's, be, he's being asked about it pretty much every week now in his press conference. And the news is always good, to be honest. So um, he's out training with the squad, initial training at the start of sessions, you know, running drills, those type of things. No contact training yet, no heading of the ball yet. He's not at that stage, but Nuno talks in glowing and positive terms every time he every time he comes up, and we know how kind of guarded Nuno is when it comes to these kind of things. So for him to be talking so positively, I, I just yeah, I'm feeling very optimistic about the situation. And he said, you know, the next stage is joining up with the squad sort of fully, 
Uh, then it's about building up his fitness because obviously he's not played since the end of November. And then it's about him playing again. So they don't want to put a time scale on it at all. But the speed of his recovery, the fact he's out with the players every day now, you know, that contact phase, as we know, we had Don Goodman on the on the podcast when this when this horrific incident happened. That contact phase is the crucial one now. Heading the ball again, colliding with players again. If he gets through that, then he he, he won't be far away. And I really do think we'll see him before the end of the season, probably in April. As you will no doubt have heard, Graham Hughes has passed away after a short illness at the age of 87. Graham was a very much loved figure around his beloved Molyneux and a real character as well. Let's hear from him now. He spoke to Tim on the Molyneux View podcast number three back in January 2020. I used to cycle every day from Cotswolds because I did the dressing rooms for years, you know. Yeah. Dressing rooms and uh, uh, when we was... Uh, club was struggling, you know. You know, it was great, the atmosphere. That's what got the walls through in those days. Yeah. In those days, if the job wants to do it, do it, you know. Yeah. He used yeah. to help on the pitch. And just George Best as a wall supporter. Yeah. He, uh, he came to be a wall supporter by watching the walls on the television in Europe, you know, in those friendlies. Yeah. And he came in one night to do a do upstairs, and I said, we saw me book George, the bestie book, and he's got to the walls of team I suppose as a boy. He scored against the walls and I couldn't understand why he didn't celebrate. He said, well, I didn't want to celebrate it against the team I used to used support. Used to support, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's, lo- that's lovely, Graham. Thank you so much. I should let you get back to your cake here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're man. Oh, we're listening to that is Paul Berry, former head of communications at Wolves and author of a wonderful tribute article on the club website. Hi, Paul. Hi, Jackie. Oh, such memories of a wonderful man. It is, it is. I mean, just listening to it brings it all back, doesn't it? It's, uh, and what a great clip that almost, I think it sums Graham up, just jumping around in what he was saying to Tim. And um, I mean, that George Best book, he used to sort of walk around Molyneux with it and show everybody just, uh, you know, every few months it'd come out just to make sure everyone realised that, yeah, that George was a Wolves fan. So, no, incredible. You'd see him in reception, Graham. Anybody that walked in would always see him sitting there. And I remember going there with my mum a year or so ago and you just can't help but look around the trophy cabinet in there and straight away he'd say, George Best, you know, George Best was a Wolves fan and he'd talk to you about George Best. He was so proud of that in particular, wasn't he? He was, yeah, as I say, and, and especially that cabinet, like you mentioned, I mean, he used to sort of, must be every week, he'd uh, he'd have the polish out, he'd be opening it up and, and just literally polishing every single thing in there that he could. And uh, I mean, it was his pride and joy. And um, I think as somebody said, it's almost the first thing you see as you go into Molyneux, isn't it? Whether it's visiting board members or dignitaries and... Um, yeah, he took so much pride in it and it just made such a difference to the stadium. You should explain how he came to be in that role because I believe he was a, a plumber stroke heating engineer originally, did a job at Wolves and then just ended up coming back and back until he was sort of taken on board as staff member. I think he did, yeah. I think um, sort of from the early 80s, I mean, he's a lifelong Wolves fan, I think, as we all know. But um, I think he started off sort of working with Dave Wagstaff in the old social club that was up the road and then sort of gradually just, I guess, almost charmed his way in as, as Graham always did. But uh, but yeah, such a, I mean, a utility man, I think, is what you'd describe him as in, in football terms. But literally, yeah, just did every single sort of odd job that was going. Um, and the sort of, sort of person I think you really need at a football club to a degree. And, uh, you know, lots of things that sort of get passed by, if you like, but he was the one that would step up and, and do all sorts of different jobs. As I think, again, as he just said in your clip there, he'd be on the pitch helping the groundsman. He'd be going off fetching the fetching the petrol, did he say, and going off fetching supplies and all sorts. And, yeah, I mean, that's something he just did for, crikey, over 40 years in the end. But, um, yeah, just a real incredible servant to Wolves and everything that he did. Yeah, you could. You can hear in that clip, like he goes from talking about cycling to work to George Best, and there's me just kind of nodding along, saying yes, thinking, (laughs) is this going to work on a podcast? And it's like, but but you had those encounters every day, didn't you? I guess walking to your office, which was by Graham's sort of unofficial office, can you can you kind of describe what what a normal encounter with, with Graham would be like on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, he'd just kind of saunter in and um, he'd be over your shoulder before you knew it and he'd be chatting to you about something and then he'd ask you to come and take a picture of something in one of his cabinets. 
then he'd say, why don't you do a story on this, something relating to the history of the club. Um, you know, you know. I think, again, the piece you wrote, which had some great memories on the Athletic, I think Josh summed it up really. You literally, he didn't know when you were on deadline or when you were busy and you know what it's like at a football club, but it didn't stop him and, and nobody minded, I think, because it was Graham. You know, you could be literally, you have 10 minutes to push out a story or a video or something and he'd just wander in completely oblivious and... Um, yeah, and it just it just brightened up the day. I think uh, you know football can be very pressurised at times, and everybody's busy. But but Graham just just completely untouched by all that. I think completely unfazed by it. He'd just wander in, start chatting. He'd sit down. He'd bring his cup of tea in, and um, yeah, just real special memories. And I think you know something. I'm sure that um, that the media team there are going to miss you know having him just around the corner as much as. As I say, at times it could get in the way of work, but um, but yeah, such a fountain of knowledge and such great company that um, yeah, he's going to be sadly missed, I'm sure. If anybody hasn't read your article, Paul, I would urge them to go on to wolves.co.uk and, and seek it out. It's, it's so special that everybody I've spoken to about Graham has mentioned your article and said, did you read Pez's article? Oh, tearjerker, like grown men saying how they were welling up, particularly the line at the end. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but when... The ambulance on his final journey stopped off at Molyneux. It was, oh my goodness, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house after that. It was so well written and just so beautifully done. But when you spoke to people for that article, what was their reaction? Yeah, I think um, obviously there's a lot of a lot of sadness and a lot of pain that, that you know, that he's gone. But equally... I think it's important, and, and this is what everybody, you know, people that are closer to him than me were saying, you've got to celebrate a life. You know, he lived he lived the life he wanted. Um, he went to his beloved club pretty much every day for sort of over 40 years. So I think people just wanted to contribute, um, give their memories of Graham. Um, you know, even since the article came out, the amount of messages I've had from people that, uh, you know, I haven't spoke to or probably seen for years, but sort of... Um, you know, mentioning the article, but more importantly, wanting to mention their own memories of Graham. And, and literally, you could, you know, you could write a book, couldn't you? I think um, it's funny. I remember being at a funeral once, which was sort of really well attended funeral, loads of people. I remember the vicar sort of standing up and saying, if only, you know, everybody here today had a chance to say what they felt about the person that had passed away. And that I thought of that with Graham because you just think there's so many people with so much to say. Um, and yeah, everybody wanted to contribute and sort of pay tribute to him because uh, you think, you know, he's just one of those special people that probably don't come along too often, I think. I think, like, the point to make with Graham is that, that people like him and, and, and Foz and Rachel Hale-Flint, who we've lost in recent years, you know, they're, they're what make a football club what it is, you know. And, um, and Bez, you'll know from working with him for many years, just how much he meant to so many people. I mean, the fact that he had a stand named after him, you know, he could have named, erected first in 2003, I think, with the first promotion season under Dave Jones, could have named it after John Richards or Andy Thompson or whatever, but, but Sir Jack chose to name it after Graham Hughes because of how much he means to so many people and it's sort of difficult to get that across to fans maybe, Bezza, but but um, but he just meant so much to everybody, didn't he? I think he did and, and that's, you know, spot on with the stand and I think the relationship he had with Sir Jack, again, that was another special one and, and that's why, you know, I think Sir Jack certainly recognised everything you've said about how much Graham meant, but meant to so many people but I think Sir Jack also wanted to show Graham you know what he meant to him by the name of that stand and, and yeah I mean he couldn't have been prouder and, and there's a big photograph of it you know full in his, in his office um, and he used to constantly go and show people and look at them sitting in my stand so yeah he did it is difficult to get across I think but I think a lot of supporters are aware of him aren't they from, from going in I mean he must have shown thousands of people around Molyneux uh, and, and those characters, as you say, I think it, it feels a bit like the end of an era because I think football's changed, hasn't it? It's progressed and, and life has changed and you just wonder how many people now will will stay in a workplace even until they're 87. You know, I mean, it wasn't a sort of nine-to-five shift, if you like, but he there's never anywhere else he wanted to be, um, you know, every single day. And, and yeah, I mean, he, and as you say, he meant so many things to so many different people. And, and that stand is a great legacy. I think with Foz, you know, the club named the press room after him, didn't they? And I think Rachel has an award named after her. And those are the sort of people that, as Wolves continue to progress, as we all hope, um, you know, nobody's going to forget those people and Wolves aren't going to forget them. And they're always going to have that, that place at Molyneux that they really deserve. Somebody else who was very close to Graham and saw him on a regular basis 
was one of his golden girls who you mentioned in the article, Claire Peters, who's ticket office team leader. Here are her memories. A couple of lovely stories about Graham. So first of all, the playoff final in 2003. So we all went to a hotel after the game to obviously celebrate. And Sir Jack asked Graham to look after the trophy. So Sarah and myself escorted him up to his room, complete with trophy, to make sure he got there okay. And he then slept with the trophy for the night, did the job, and obviously brought it back to Molyneux the next day. The other one, um, Graham was very good at going around to all the departments and his opening line when he went in there was, my favourite department. Not sure whether he knew that we knew he said it to every department. I think it was so that he could keep them sweet and get the best biscuits from the departments. Uh, but one day he was standing in reception and one of the girls from accounts was in there and he promptly did his usual, my favourite department, not knowing that I was standing behind him and had heard every word. He really chuckled when he realised that I'd caught him out and hands on hips with a scowl on my face and he just gave me that lovely cheeky smile. That was Claire Peters there and Paul is is there an added sense of sadness that you feel it's kind of the end of an era of those people who were the fabric of the club as you mentioned Foz from the media office and Rachel Hayhoe Flynn, Sir Jack obviously and now Graham and the fact that the club has moved on, times move on and really everybody's base now at the training ground, so the likes of Nuno and the players wouldn't really have known Graham very well. Yeah, I think it has changed, as you say, up until 2005. I think it was before the training ground was kind of opened. Uh, the players and the young players would go and get changed at, at Molyneux before going off to train wherever it was they were training. And that's where, you know, Graham was in his element. And that's where he built relationships, not just with the likes of Bully, who he was incredibly close to, but young players that never even played for Wolves. They still remember him from those days. And I think, you know, it did change after that. Um, he still used to go down on his bike to the training ground when he could, but then gradually over time, I guess he would just see see people on a match day or events at Molyneux. But I think they would know him. You know, he would always have a you know he'd have a conversation with anybody that was that was walking past. So they certainly know who he was. But I just think with the way that the game has changed, that perhaps you know these kind of characters aren't so much going to be involved, which is, which is very sad. But equally, uh, you know, they leave a legacy which will never be forgotten. Um, and Claire, I mean, just, just to mention Claire and, and the Golden Girls, as you say, I mean, they've been incredible over the last year with the support they've given to Graham since the pandemic when he was at home on his own. You know, they've done an incredible job. And Bully as well, who I know was with him sort of very close to the end. So, um, yeah, and, and that just shows, you know, that spirit at Wolves that was built up all those years ago, um, which, will, which will never go, I think. Paul Berry, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, Jackie. And do read Paul's article on the Wolves website and also Tim's article in The Athletic. Some wonderful first-hand accounts from people who knew Graham very well. Graham Hughes, who has passed away at the age of 87. He won't ever be forgotten. Tim, as well as your Graham Hughes article, you've been rather busy this week. Yeah, uh, I had a big piece out on Saturday about the Portuguese Revolution. Um, it's when you're doing when you're doing this job day to day. It's um, you don't really notice these things sort of creeping up on you. But I was setting the questions for the Wolves quiz at the start of February that we had on the Athletic, and um, posed a question about how many Portuguese players have played for Wolves under Nuno. Uh, it came to 16, which I wasn't expecting, to be honest. It didn't feel like that many. Uh, and it's been 18 since Fosin came in. So I just thought this club is so Portuguese. Um, Portuguese is the main language. They've got seven seven backroom staff who are Portuguese. I think it's eight or nine players at the moment, plus a couple more out on loan. So I just thought it was kind of worth looking at how this kind of Portuguese revolution has changed the club. And... It's interesting in that it hasn't changed the club in terms of the fact that you walk around Compton, there's there's no Portuguese flags, there's no Portuguese banners. You know, you'll hear a bit of Portuguese, obviously, but but otherwise, you know, it's it, it doesn't feel that way. And it wasn't a master plan to sign Portuguese players. It's not like uh, Arsenal back in the day under Wenger or Newcastle when Newcastle's uh, chief scout Graham Carr literally based himself in France and they signed about 16 players from, from Liga. It wasn't like that. It's just the fact that George Mendes 
is so influential in recruitment and, and most of his players happen to be Portuguese and far cheaper and arguably more technically gifted than their English counterparts. So yeah, I thought one thing that really came out of it from speaking to people was was the professionalism of of this squad and the fact that you know it's it's, it's a large group of mostly young Portuguese players, but if you had a large group of mostly English players, I think it would be different in terms of there's no kind of drinking culture and they're not going out clubbing and 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 those kind of things. You know, they're a very professional bunch encapsulated by the Matinho story which I wrote last year about how he wanted a meal at Bilash in town and it was fully booked and his mate was saying look just tell them who you are and they'll they'll clear the decks and empty the restaurant for you and he refused to say who he was uh, I know it's just a little thing but that just sort of encapsulates what he was like so um, no, enjoy, I enjoyed doing that and then um, what I didn't enjoy was putting together a piece on the 15 goals Wolves have conceded from crosses this season that was sorry but that was before the Man City game. 33 goals conceded this season, 15 from crosses. So I analysed every single one, and uh, it's a bit of a horror show to be honest. But important to point out why and, and where they're going wrong and all that stuff. So, so that was good. And then um, another article coming up this week on Dion Sanderson, who I went to watch at Crew at the weekend, um, playing for Sunderland on loan and playing very very well. And I, you know, I wanted to go and see it in person. And I tell you what, you know, like Morgan Gibbs White at Swansea at the start of the season, he just looks a different player. He looks like he's really grown in stature, shoulders out, really commanding centre half. You know, Sunderland had a, had a tough time at Crew. They were two 0 down at half time. Eventually, got it back to two two with two wonder goals. And Sanderson was was their best defender. And uh, spoke to Lee Johnson about him afterwards. He called him a Rolls Royce of a defender, which which kind of sums him up really. So, first time he's ever played centre-half in a back two, as far as I'm aware, but he's taken very well to it, and he's having a great time at Sunderland. So, um, yeah, lots more to come on that in an article, which I think should be out on Friday. Commanding centre-half in a back two, and he comes from Wolverhampton, and he was a Wolves player. (laughs) Don't Mm. start the campaign. Interesting. (laughs) Good attitude, tall, physical presence. I mean, nah, Wolves don't need anybody like that. Sell him, get rid. (laughs) But seriously, it would be wonderful if you were to continue his progression in this vein. I mean, he is in League One at the moment, it has to be said, but the fact that he's standing out and... Stephen Elliott, former Wolves player, seeing him on Twitter talking about how he's the best loanee he's ever seen at Sunderland. All these things point in the right direction. I mean, do you think from what you know now that he's likely to spend another season out on loan next season, really develop with a view to potentially coming back to Wolves and being a first team or is it too early to say? I think they'd probably want him to do it in the Championship for a season first. I, 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 it all depends on Nuno's um, opinion. I mean, they took Max Kilman from non-league, and a few months later, he was in their team. So, um, one for Nuno to assess in the summer if he hasn't already made up his mind. You know, we know often when a player goes out on loan that that's it really, and he sort of made his mind up. So, um, so we'll see what happens on that front. But yeah, it's only been a few games, and it's only League One. But like I said, he does look very commanding. He's, he's he's quick, he's good in the air, and he's got all the attributes you need. It's great that he's from Wensfield as well. Tessa's Sanderson's nephew, of, of course. So let, let's see what he can do for the rest of the season. He's got to keep it up. Sunderland are gunning for the top two, and it could end up being a fantastic move for, for, for Dion. And Ipswich Town are keeping up the Wolves tradition, it seems. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they had so they had Mick McCarthy as manager, um, then they had Paul Lambert as manager, and now it's Paul Cook, ex Wolves midfielder. So um I've been keeping a close eye on them for years, really, for, for those connections. But also now Luke Matheson's gone there on loan. So um, yeah, there's a great piece on The Athletic analysing the, the the very strange ownership of, of, of Marcus Evans over the past few years. Uh, Phil Buckingham and others contribute to that. It's a fantastic piece. And uh, they had a big exclusive last week as well, saying that Lambert was out and, and Paul Cook was on his way in. So, yeah, very interesting times at that club. And that's, that's a really good read. I'd advise anyone to, to take a look at it. On to any other business, the Feed Our Pack campaign is continuing with Wolves Foundation and the Liverpool home game is next at Molyneux and they would very much like you to buy a virtual ticket to help feed the people of Wolverhampton who are struggling in the pandemic in particular. So if you go to wolves.co.uk and in the top left hand corner you'll see it says tickets, you click on that 
And then you'll see in the middle of the screen at the top, Foundation, Feed Our Pack, and then you can buy a Wolves ticket there for the Liverpool game. Virtual one, of course, £20. And all proceeds go to feeding the people of Wolverhampton who need our support at the moment. Just finally, Tim, before we go, your thoughts on that Villa game at the weekend and what Nuno might do? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not going to make a joke. I'm not going to be frivolous. Hopefully, Jackie, uh, they come out on the, uh, on the front foot and give them a bit of a game. And hopefully, Dendonka's in midfield and Bolly's back in defence. I think that would make a real difference. Nevis and Dendonka as a partnership, I really do like that. And uh, Bolly's, you know, their best defender uh, when it comes, certainly when it comes to crosses into the box. Uh, we'll see on Grealish and, and his fitness, but Grealish played at Molyneux um, last year and Semedo did a very good job of keeping him quiet. I know I know, I know, he ended up giving away the penalty in, in stoppage time, but but he, um, I remember a lot of Villa fans commenting on, on how Semedo had, had, had done a good job on Grealish that day. So hopefully even if Grealish does play, then the same can happen again. So yeah, Villa in indifferent form. And um, then Donker's last goal came at Villa, so maybe it's time for him to score, uh, or maybe it's time for William Jose to score. Let's 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 go with a bit of positivity and uh, hopefully win. Because if they don't win and they don't beat Liverpool, then season's over. You weren't going to be positive, were they? You were going to say when I said what do you think they'll do, you were going to say put five behind the ball, be absolutely shocking in the first half, not coming out of their own half, have Wolves fans explode on Twitter with negativity, and in the second half they'll do something. How dare you! assume how dare you <laughs> fingers crossed and also um before we finish um all our best wishes go to kevin mcdonald who former wolves player now at fulham who's announced this week that he's undergoing a kidney transplant um in the next few weeks and it may end his 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 career um and he said he's been a very interesting interview uh with fulham he said he's played with it all of his career and he's known he's needed a, a kidney transplant for 12 years. 12 years. And he says the situation's got a lot worse. He's got one kidney that doesn't work at all and the other's working at like 10%, he says. So, you know, very, very serious um, operation. And, you know, we, we send him all our best wishes. I mean, he was a fantastic player for Wolves. And by all accounts, you know, a, a lovely guy as well. So, um, so yeah, good luck, Kevin. We're all thinking here. Yeah, fantastic player in Wolves colours in his time. And we wish him all the very best. Thank you so much, Tim. Cheers, Bab. See you next week. And thank you very much to Paul Berry as well for his contribution. Now, if you'd like to subscribe to The Athletic, you can do so for the special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy Tim's analysis and in-depth features, as well as everybody else's on The Athletic. Some wonderful stuff in there, as well as ad-free versions of our podcasts. If you listen via the app, we'll be back with you next Tuesday morning. Bye for now. The Athletic.